I don't know how it happened, but I found myself in the Schleiermarker corner of theology Twitter. Like lots of students of theology, I hadn't read much Friedrich Schleiermacher during my degree. I hadn't come from a distinctly anti-Schleiermacher school, as is the experience of many, uh, but I still knew him mostly by reputation. Well, let me tell you, folks, the Schleiermacher wine guys on Twitter are passionate evangelists, and two reading groups later, here we are, the beginning of the Love, Rinse, Repeat two-week series on the works of Friedrich Schleiermacher, tentatively titled Deus Ex Schleiermacher. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Jung Land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister of the word in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is Theodore Weil, uh, Associate Dean of Curriculum and Institutional Assessment and the Harvey Pothoff Professor of Theology and Modern Western Religious Thought at Illiff School of Theology, Denver. He is the author of Modern Religion, Modern Race, Liturgy Wars, Ritual Theory and Protestant Reform in 19th Century Zurich, and our focus today, Schleiermacher, a guide for the perplexed, part of the TNT Clark series. Uh, it came out in 2013, so you can get it where you get good books. Uh, just a shout out, at the end of the interview, Ted mentions uh, and extends an invitation to a virtual conversation, Race, Surveillance and Technologies of Resistance an online event run through Illiff's Artificial Intelligence Institution, looking at the use of technology as tools of resistance by the BIPOC community. Uh, information for the event is in the show notes and Ted suggests signing up as students. Uh, please make Ted welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat as we begin week one of Deus Ex Schleiermacher. Well, Ted, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so it's a pleasure to have you here. We're, we're, we're going to be talking, you know, broadly speaking today about your book, Schleiermarker, A Guide for the Perplexed, part of the TNT Bloomsbury series, uh, which was published a few years ago now, but where, you know, Schleiermarker's often popping up in, in you know, at least on my Twitter feed. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I'm curious, for those who are really coming in at the ground floor here, can you give us just a little bit of, of, of who is Frederick Schleiermacher? And, yeah. uh, and I guess what are some of the things to hold in one's mind as, as if you begin to read about him or read about him? Sure. So he is a Protestant. He, he uh, was one of the figures that um, he's German, although there's not a Germany when he's alive. He's Prussian. Uh, and he lives in a time period. So he dies in 1834. So he lives in a time period where the world is changing um, both politically, um, the, he's alive when the French Revolution happens. It's changing intellectually. He's alive during the Enlightenment and, and science. There's the rise of science, the rise of historical criticism of the Bible. Uh, and he is known as the first kind of great Protestant theologian to grapple with some of the changes that came about in, in the new world. And it's the world that we live in today. So, so he, uh, he articulates a lot of... Um, he articulates a lot of um, possible ways of being religious and doing theology that are live options for people in the world today. Um, he, he sees himself as a traditional Calvinist, uh, but he's also aware that um, he has to rearticulate what that's going to sound like because the world is totally different than when John Calvin was alive. Hmm. Thank you for that. that. That's great. So 
that when you when you speak to a lot of people and, and people will hear this in, uh, in next week's episode with Shelley Poe, you, you know, when people talk yeah. about um, coming to Schleiermarker, there's often a testimony which was, well, I was at Princeton or I was somewhere where, you know, um, all the teaching was about Bart and, and how Schleiermarker, <laughs> and Schleiermarker was the problem that Bart solved. Um, yeah. and, and it's, it's, you know, often a kind of a polemical or at least, you know, or, or a slightly dismissive tone about Schleiermarker and then, they kind of go, hmm, maybe I'll read him for myself, and then they have a, a very different experience. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm less less interested in kind of hashing out how it came to be that that's the way kind of Schleimacher's received, and more about, I guess, why do you think people are kind of captivated and, and, and converted, as it were, when they do kind of, you know, sit and read Schleimacher as opposed to what is kind of presented about Schleimacher? What does yeah. he think in his work that, you know, because there's plenty of people who wrote around that time or, or afterwards who are kind of, you know, forgotten yeah. uh, or, or don't really capture people's attention and the imagination and heart. So what do you think it is about about him? Yeah, that's a great question. I never thought about that before, but but it is true that because I work on Schleimacher, I, people often come up to me and they give a kind of a testimonial about their conversion experience. I hadn't really put it in those terms before. So, so I think that's right. I think, I think he is presented as kind of an intellectual problem. Um, and often he's presented as not having a, a good enough intellectual solution. But when you read Schleiermacher, the, I mean, the fundamental move he makes that makes him the, I mean, people talk about the father of modern theology, the fundamental move he makes is to say that religion is a matter of feeling. Um, and, and the, you know, he has some technical works, but he also has works. Uh, he's a great preacher. He's most famous in his day as a preacher. I mean, when he dies, like 20,000 people show up in the streets of Berlin to follow his, his casket through the streets. And it's, it's not because they read his theology. It's because they heard his sermons. Uh, and for him, um, what preachers do is they talk about the experience they've had in the world and they talk about how that experience has been changed because of the experience they've had in a community. And for him in particular, it's the community founded by Jesus Christ, right? So it's very, very, uh, he doesn't, when you read him for himself, he's not so concerned about picking theological fights as he is about saying, listen, uh, there's this amazing experience that I've had and I'd really like you to have it too. And it, it's not unlike sort of the, the Paul Tillich, you know, boiling down his theology to the idea that you are accepted or that, or that somehow the universe is speaking to you. Um, and I think a lot of people, I mean, that's what Schleiermacher would call grace. And a lot of people have had that experience and his words resonate or they desperately want that experience. And so his words resonate. And, and if you read his sermons, if you read, um, even his speeches, his speeches, which is what made him famous in 1799. I mean, they sound, they can sound weird. And everybody, you know, in theology class starts with speech number two, which is sort of this argument about what religion is. But but you can just feel a guy um, sort of struggling to let you know uh, how how the world, how the universe feels to him. And it feels pretty good, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. And I think we're going to come back a bit to both the kind of idea of you know feeling and experience and 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 preaching as we get on. But I think that's really just as a helpful thing that like I think probably you know you can look at the big tomes and all the long words and think oh this is just you know intellectual uh, roundaboutism. But but yeah. that like yeah no it's really about trying to convey something that he thinks is is yeah, palpable and and real yeah. and, and 
For sure. I mean, he, there was a moment, his, so his father's a preacher, right? His father's a minister. There's a moment where his father disowns him because Schleiermacher has the wrong doctrines. And, and uh, it was kind of this very painful exchange. He's a, he's a high school student, and he finally says to his dad, like, look, uh, what they're teaching me in school about the dual nature of Christ, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And his father thinks like, oh, well, then you can't be saved. You can't be a part of the church. Um, and, and in a sense, um, the whole gist of Schleiermacher's theology is, no, I, I was in this, he was actually went to a Moravian school. So a bunch of sort of hymn singing, meal eating pietists. And he said, and it was a, it was an amazingly beautiful, powerful experience. And that's what religion is. And the fact that the way that you articulate that experience doesn't resonate with me, doesn't mean that I don't have religion. It doesn't, it, it just means I've got to think of a better way to say to you, to explain to you, how, what is this, what is this experience like for me? Mm. Thank you for that. So, so let's, let's stay with that then for a second, because yeah, you, you write uh, at one point, you know, out, out of that experience, you kind of say that, you know, you can see a good distinction uh, emerge in Schleiermacher's work. You say that religion is an experience of redemption found in community and theology is a reflection on an articulation of that experience. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, you know, you kind of already touched on a bit of how we're aided by by remembering that in that, you know, it can actually maybe help form bonds even when we're not articulating things in the same way. It can, it can help, you know, not just lead to knee jerk. Well, you're not intellectually assenting to X, Y, and Z. And so we have to say uh, farewell and have to part. Um, But I guess, can you talk a little bit more about like, you know, then I guess what, what it means then to say like, you know, this, this experience of religion and this experience of, you know, a shared experience, both as like, you know, what he's experienced, but also it's, it's happening together and, and how he can kind of, uh, I don't know if I say rely on that, but like, you know, how he can feel that's a, you know, an, an adequate ground for beginning everything else kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So, so, uh, boy, there's a bunch of ways to get into that question. I'm trying to think about which one might be the best. Um, so, so there is, it is communal, right? So one of the things that some people learn in school about Schleiermacher is that he's in, he's too individualistic, but that's actually just false. Uh, so, so he, he is, uh, um, he's of the generation and I don't, I don't want to get, um, caught in a rabbit hole of Kant because every time I start talking about Kant in class, I just talk for the whole class about Kant, but, but I will say this, Schleiermacher is of the generation right after Kant um, and he's one of the foremost sort of philosophers and thinkers and public intellectuals that makes the case that the way you, that you experience the world has to do with the language you speak, right? So the, the concepts that you're raised with are what shape your experience for you. Um, and at, at one level or another, I would think most cognitive scientists um, and philosophers would agree. I mean, there's lots of debates about the details, but but for Schleiermacher... Um, I mean, this is the time when the idea that people have different cultures is kind of invented, right? And so, so the community that you belong to, the language you speak, um, makes certain experiences possible for you and makes other experiences not possible for you. And so it, what happens for Schleiermacher when you join a Christian church is you're acculturated into a way of being in the world, a way of experiencing the world, and a way of acting in the world, in this community that was, I mean, the thing that Jesus does for Schleiermacher that's so redemptive is that Jesus founds a community. And so when you join that community, um, 
in, in a sense, I mean, you know, we, we're speaking English and Jesus was likely speaking Aramaic, but the way that Jesus, the way that the disciples experienced Jesus, the way that Jesus used language, the concepts that Jesus used, the very sort of gestures that Jesus made, it changed the way the world was for the disciples. And, and, and you can sort of see how, um, how cultures get passed along from generation to generation. So, I mean, I sometimes use the example of my kids' high school where people like to wear the baseball hat sort of uh, at an angle. I mean, I don't know who the first kid that did that was. He, he's gone now. He's living somewhere else, doing something else. He probably doesn't wear a baseball cap. But kids in my kids' high school still do that, right? So there's a sense in which that cultural gesture, whatever it means, still gets passed along among this group of people, right? So, so for Schleiermacher, when you join the church, you're confronted in a, in a way by the way people act and speak and experience with the personality of Jesus. And the thing that's so compelling about Jesus is um, that Jesus, we might have to unpack the language a little bit, but Jesus lived in a perfect awareness of God's presence. Uh, and that is, um, that's a an amazingly um, powerful way to go through the world. And so that's what you get when you join the church. Or you don't get a bunch of doctrines, right? You get this experience of being in a community together, experiencing a world a certain way. And then different Christian communities have found different ways of putting that into language. Um, and, you know, Schleiermacher is pretty down with Calvinism. And he, he, in his, his theology books, he spends a lot of time quoting creeds, right? Because creeds, define how the community has experienced things, right? Everybody, all Christians quote the Bible, but the, but the creed of the Lutheran church or the Calvinist church are the, one, are the places where you, take, you get their particular take on that. Um, and, and that's what you join and, and that's the experience you get. And then, uh, you know, we can, we can try to articulate to each other as best we can what that experience is like. But what's important is, is that community and that experience and not whether or not we can put it into language adequately. Mm, thank you for that. And I think... You know, people often talk about, like, you know, that with, you know, Schleiermacher and the Trinity, which, you know, we often, again, the other critique, if it's not too individual, it's that the Trinity is put at the end of his systematics. Um, yeah. It is partly, you know, to show, like, look, this part, like, which causes all kinds of headaches and, and conceptual difficulties, <laughs> especially just folks who are just trying to get by in their lives, you know, yeah. you can actually have a robust experience of redemption, without ever having to figure out how to explain what this is to some extent. And what we need is to kind of figure out, you know, better ways to do it, you know, and yeah, yeah. Uh, more appropriate ways. No. And, and Shelley Poe will be great. on here. It's really a wonderful book because she, A, she makes the case that the Trinity is important to Schleiermacher, even though he yes. only gives it a few pages at the end. And, and B, the way she talks about him and the Trinity, um, I think, uh, it goes to what's what the, the the role that doctrine plays in a church. It's not, but yes, uh, strangely, Jesus never, made anybody recite a proper Trinitarian formula before he baptized them. He just, he just baptized them. Right. Um, and so, yeah, in the father in the name of the father, son, Holy ghost, but you don't have to say what that means. You just have to, you have to show up for the baptism. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I guess another like thing that I, I can see that could be advantageous is of, of kind of this focus on, you know, being in the community and the groundedness of the actual, you know, these these confessions that people have made or, or formulated as a church body, uh, is that so? So we're kind of in a time now where we we are, you know, very aware of the full range of Christian theologies and Christian expressions, and we're also in full awareness of the, the full range of Christian history, and a lot of it 
uh, is, you know, less than ideal, if not horrific. Um, yeah. And so sometimes people can, you know, in an attempt to maybe discredit or deny or distance themselves from particular expressions or histories, uh, appeal to a kind of idealised or pure Christianity um, that's just kind of out, just out there and different to that thing that you've actually experienced or seen or what that church is actually doing. But it seems in some way Schleiermacher seems to have it. The, the only Christianity is the one we've got, uh, yep. the one actually occurring in communities in the present and in the past. And that's the one we have to wrestle and reflect on. And I think, you know, some reason I think that's that's a helpful thing and that it doesn't kind of allow us to point at every ill committed or permitted by the church and say, well, that's not really Christianity. Um, Christianity yeah. is this, this other thing. And it's like, no, no, you've got to wrestle with what's there. Um, am right. I kind of on the right track with, with that? Kind yeah, of- no, I think, yeah, and I think that's exactly right. So, so um so in his in the the book that made us famous, which isn't actually very long, it's like hundred pages. It's called On Religion, um, and and but what Schleiermacher wants to argue there is that there is no such thing as religion in general. There are only specific historical communities. The, the sort of term of art in his day is is that you know it's there are positive religions that is actually historically existing communities, um, and and what he says about religion in general is sort of um, an abstraction from what he's learned in those communities or about those communities. But but there's no such thing as religion apart from or before or underneath those communities. So that is absolutely true. So, so and Schleimacher as a minister is profoundly um, aware of how flawed those communities are. Um, and it's no good saying... Um, uh, so let me draw an analogy. I, I don't know if this is too, you could edit this out if it's too much of a roundabout, right? But Schleiermacher in 1806, he's, he's living in Germany. He's living in Prussia. He's living in a town called Halle and Napoleon invades and the Prussian army is supposed to be the great, I mean, Prussia doesn't have a lot going for it, but it has like the biggest army and the best trained army in Europe. It's the source of all of their pride and their international power. And Napoleon wipes them out in like, one horrible afternoon. I mean, it's just a disgrace. And the, the, the soldiers flee the fields and there's all sorts of finger pointing. Like everybody's saying like, oh, the generals screwed up or the soldiers are cowards or the king did the wrong thing. And Schleiermacher gets up in the pulpit the next Sunday and says this amazing thing, which is that um, you can't point fingers like that, that, that whatever you want to say about the performance, that what happened, the performance of our army or what happened to the leaders, the leaders are part of us, right? We are part of them. We're sort of an organism. And if you see that there are flaws in our leadership, the place to look is in yourself, right? Because it's us. I think about this sometimes in the United States. We're just about to have an election. And, uh, and you know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but the way that people talk about, you know, he's not my president, I always want to say, actually, he, he is your president. Like, this is your country. You bear some responsibility for the way we are. And he is an expression of the way we are, right? So, um, yeah, you can complain about him, but you also better get to work making this a better country, right? So that's this—that's exactly the same thing Schleiermacher wants to say about the church. Yeah, church has done horrific things. Uh, you can't say that's not Christianity. You have to say boy, this community I'm part of is flawed. What are we going to do about that? Yeah, thank you. I think that's, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, so something that's interesting in your, in your book is, you know, part of the reason you kind of are writing it, you say is, you know, one, to provide a good ground level intro that doesn't require you've already read an intro before the intro. Uh, yeah. and, and, and also to kind of address that, you kind of say that in, in you know, kind of 
English studies of Schleiermacher, English language studies of Schleiermacher, um, the focus is kind of exclusively on his theology uh, compared to studies in Germany, which look at his range of, of interdisciplinary work. Uh, yeah. So I guess just curious about like talking about that range a little bit uh, and, you know, why you thought that was that was so so helpful to focus on. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, thank you for that question. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, uh, yes, in this country, in the United States, um, if you read Schleiermacher in seminary or in graduate school, um, you will you will read him as a theologian and you read a very narrow slice of his theology. And and um, that's not who he is, but it also leads to, I think, some of the worst misinterpretations of Schleiermacher. So, for example, um, the argument that people make uh, that um, he's a kind of a quietist because he argues that religion is an experience. It's an, it's a, it's an effect that the universe has on you. They take that to mean that, um, that he's a kind of a contemplative um, person who would never, uh, whose whole role in life is to try to just sort of accept whatever's happening and come to terms with it. Right. The fact of the matter is that he was a very, very active political figure in his day. Um, he, he, uh, he really pissed off the king pretty good. He had spies sitting in his lectures and in his sermons to take notes because he was going to be put on trial for treason and sent into exile. Um, when the French were occupying um, the, uh, Prussia and uh, public meetings were banned, he, he never wanted to preach politics from the pulpit. But in that moment, that was the one place where Germans could get together. And so he preached a series of political sermons um, he was a part of a plot to overthrow the French, which involved, you know, hiding ammunition. And he he took a sort of a dangerous, because he was a minister, people thought like, oh, nobody will suspect him. He took coded letters back and forth between sort of the rebels. And it's almost like Star Wars, right? The rebels in Berlin and the king who had fled to Eastern Prussia. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's all in, in terms of political activity and social activity. I mean, his first job is a, is the chaplain at, at, the, at the, the charity, right? The big charity hospital in Berlin, which is still there uh, because, because for him, it's not about the, it's not about correct doctrine. It's not about just sort of experiencing things. It's all, it, it, the reason you experience things is because it alters the way that you interact with the world. And he's very, very active. So you need to know something about his politi political activities um, you, he's often read as trying to, um, as a sort of apologist for Christianity after Kant, as, as sort of trying to defend Christianity after Kant, because Kant made the argument that you can't really know one way or the other, whether or not there's a God. And Schleiermacher has been read in the English world as saying, oh no, you can have direct contact with God. That's just a false reading of Schleiermacher, but you have to know something about his theory of language and his hermeneutics to understand what he's talking about when he talks about this experience of the infinite. So it's, it's, it, um, some of the stuff he writes is more fun than his theology, but also if you know about it, 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 uh, it gives you a perspective to interpret his theology more accurately, I think. Mm, thank you for that. I think, you know, you show that in the book and that you, you know, the theological effect is like uh, second to last, essentially after you've gone worldview and hermeneutics yeah. and religion uh, as well. Um, so well, there's, a, there's a million books about his theology, so <laughs> you don't need another one, really, honestly. Right. <laughs> uh, that's really helpful. And I think well, let's stay with the, the political activity for a bit because, you know, you've touched on that, you know, that like there's, you, you kind of have a, a couple of stories in, in the chapter, which, you know, like it's, it's, 
uh, Jean Le Car level uh, yeah. spycraft of, of how they were doing these messages and the yeah. like and what Schleiermark was involved in. Can you talk a little bit about how it, I mean, I guess it's the way that activity was kind of generated out of his theology? Like it wasn't yeah. like this kind of independent activity that he did as a citizen. It, it came from his kind of theological reflection from his Christology and, and the like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. So uh, so I, it does come out of his theology uh, um, and he is one of the, early theorists of sort of the modern nation state. And that, and that comes out of his theology uh, for better and for worse, right? So, so maybe let's just talk for a second about Christology. For some reason, this is the easiest way for me to get into it. But, but, but it just feels so familiar because it, like, it feels like he's living in 2021 sometimes, right? So, <laughs> so in his day, Christology just means like, who do you think Jesus was and, and uh, what did Jesus do that saves you, right? And there's two options. There's a sort of a conservative confessional option, which argues that um, Jesus is this miraculous healer who, who has, um, uh, does this sort of atonement exchange to get rid of God's wrath, and that if you believe that, you can be saved. That was one option. There's plenty of those people running around the United States today. And then the other option was sort of the deists, right? The, the, the sort of rationalists who argued that, oh, you know, all religions teach the golden rule, and Jesus is just one of those great founders of a religion that teaches the golden rule. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, our uh, president uh, back in the day, has the Jefferson Bible in which he took all the many different translations of the Bible and just literally cut and pasted them. I mean, he had scissors and glue. The parts of it that he thought were irrational and got rid of, and the parts that he thought were worth keeping, and it's it's all the sort of the moral teachings of Jesus, right? There's no resurrection, there's no water into wine. Okay, so you've got those two options. Like, here, here are the good people, the smart people, the Democrats in this country who um, think that Jesus is like a kind of a Socrates type figure, and then there's the sort of magical thinking people who think he's more like Superman, right? Strange being from another planet who comes down to for truth, justice, the American way. And Schleiermacher doesn't like either of those options, right? The, one of them makes him sort of mouth the words that he knows aren't, can't be true. And he says like, look, God gave me a brain, so I better use it, right? And the other people are, um, they're not, it's not a religion. Deism's not really a religion, right? It's just a, it's just a philosophy and nobody's going to show up on Sunday. There's going to be, there's no community of deists really. I mean, you could argue about Unitarian Universalists, but there's no real community of, of deists, right? So, so here's the so he starts a third option, right? And uh, and here's what it is, right? Uh, it's what it's what we were talking about earlier, how Jesus founds a community, right? Jesus experiences God perfectly. Everything that Jesus says and does, and everything that Jesus experiences, is done with a full awareness of the complete presence of God, and that makes Jesus this incredibly charismatic figure, who who people flock to. And in hanging out with him, they pick up his speech and his mannerisms and his way of being, and they start experiencing the world the way Jesus does. And that uh, gets passed down. It's a culture that gets passed down from generation to generation, even when Jesus isn't in the picture anymore, right? So that allows Schleiermacher to say, Jesus isn't just a, a, a philosopher of morals, right? He's literally present in the church, in this community, but he's not present magically in some ways that makes us pretend that Isaac Newton never existed, right? He's present in the culture, in the language, in the interactions that Christians have when they're talking to each other and when they're worshiping. And that's a real presence. And, and so that, okay. 
that maybe more than you wanted to know about his Christology. But that that kind of community is the basis of his political activity and his theory of what a nation is, right? Mm-hmm. Communities are healthy when they freely exchange experiences and ideas, right? That allows everybody in the community to learn more from other people and to grow and develop into the fullest person they can be. And so the the, the reason why he really pissed the king off, well, he criticized the king's the king was thinking about maybe uh, signing a treaty with France, kind of capitulating, and Schleiermacher was not uh, in favor of that. But but the real reason he pissed the king off um, uh, is because um, uh, the king um, tried to uh, he tried to write a liturgy for the church uh, and impose it on the church. And 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 Schleiermacher argued, not even is it a good or a bad liturgy; it's that you can't impose something on the church from outside, right? everything in the church that's going to be healthy has to grow up organically from the ground up. Uh, and so he wrote these sort of fiery tracks about, that really said some nasty things about the King's liturgy. And, uh, and then he really got in trouble. Right. Um, so, so this is actually why he doesn't like the French, right? The French are fine in France, right? But if they come into Prussia, then they're compelling us to do certain things which are which which mean that we're not flourishing as a different kind of people than the French are, right? So any community, the the, the sort of um, qualities that make a community, a culture develop fully into what that culture should be are um, that people are able to hang out with each other and freely exchange their experience and ideas. And, and there are no internal blockages to that and there are no external constraints put on that. Okay, that's, a, that's not a model of a um, top-down political structure, right? That's a model of, I mean, in a sense, he's, he's arguing that what had been subjects in Prussia need to become fully participatory citizens in a new nation state. And, and part of his political activity was he didn't just want to get rid of the French. He wanted to arm Prussian citizens to take responsibility for their country, which they had never done before, right? They'd always had mercenaries and, and only the aristocrats were in charge of the army. He wanted every Prussian to say like, hey, this is my country. I mean, this is why he thought the French kicked their butts, right? Because the French had a citizen army of, of people who were committed to the cause and the Prussians just had, you know, some nobility who either hired soldiers or scared their peasants into fighting for them. And Schleiermacher was like, that, we're never going to win this way. We have, to, we have to embrace that we are a community and be committed to the preservation of this community. And so let's, you know, let's arm the peasants. And the king was like, I'm not arming the peasants. That's never gone well for kings in the past, right? So uh, anyway, th- that's the link between, I think, his Christology and his sort of political theory. Oh, thank you for that. That's so helpful. As you say, there's so much that can be, you know, constructively used today, both, you know, in the sense of, um, you know, who Jesus is in that space, uh, you know, in, in so many of the conversations today, and also in a sense of, yeah, that owning responsibility and accountability, and and even on the colonial question of, of you know, that that imposing values and morals from from an outside onto a yeah. uh, separate yeah, community. Like this complicated stuff. question. So Schleiermacher is both a good guy and a bad guy there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's he's really the first pluralist, right? He, mm. He's not interested in proselytizing. If if you're a Buddhist, that's and that's your culture. That your job is to be the best Buddhist you can be. But uh, but yeah, he mm. he. Um, I wrote another book after that on on uh, 
on content Schleiermacher and race and and you know it, uh, it's complicated. Mm. Yeah, sure. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's not a fan of colonialism at all. But um, you know, he's also not a fan of people who don't um, sit around sharing their experiences and ideas the way that Prussians like to. <laughs> right. So there's a little bit of cultural bias there. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so we talked about you know. Schleiermacher taught a huge range of, of topics at university. Um, you have a paragraph where you kind of list off a non-exhaustive list and, but it, and it goes for a while and that's not all of it. Um, but as you've also said, he he preached like every Sunday, and, you know, to a, to a large church and, and, and people, you know, were moved by those sermons. I guess I was just curious about how those two factors, both his, you know, his the steady engagement in both the university and cross-disciplinary in the university and in the pulpit, uh, how you think that kind of shapes his work or, or how that should maybe shape how we approach his work as a reader. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. So, uh, um, I mean, that's another reason, I think, to pay attention to the range of his work and not just his theology <laughs> because, because um, he lives in a different era, right? So it's possible to be more of a polymath in his era because each of the disciplines is less specialized, right? So he's, he's up on the latest physics. He's up on the latest psychology in a way that, that, you know, it's not just not possible to be today. Um, that said, it's also true that there's um, a sort of a core to all of his, uh, to his thinking that you can see in all of the different disciplines that he's active in. He's actually the um, president of the of the Royal Academy of Sciences Philosophy Division, right? Uh, so he's sort of has renown as a philosopher in his day, um, uh, and so so the fact that there's an interconnection means that he's not he's not making up something different for each field. He's he is ex- expressing similar ways of thinking about the world, but in different disciplines. Mm. Um, with one important caveat, which I think is important, uh, he, he, he theologians are speaking, uh, it's a family conversation, right? They're speaking to other people in their community. And there's a language that Christians use, which is not universal. And he's very clear that I, when I'm doing my theology, I'm not making truth claims that other people don't have access to. Mm. I'm using this language that Christians use. But when he's doing philosophy, um, he draws pretty uh, pretty strict lines around the kinds of things he thinks other people ought to accept in his arguments. So, so I, I, that's a nice, I think, uh, part of his. He's also just brilliant, and, and you know, he, he would he would get up early in the morning on a Sunday and he'd go for a hike, and his companions would sort of be like, "Well, you know, he seems sort of distracted," but the whole time he's working out the sermon in his head, and then he shows up in uh, at the Trinity Church and he preaches a sermon, and uh, you know, he just. Uh, He's he's fully engaged all the time, so that everything he's doing um, is he can either talk about it, lecture on it, or write about it. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's also any you know. I have colleagues in, in this country. Sort of a status mark is like, what's your teaching load? If are you at a research university where you have a smaller teaching load? I mean, the guy <laughs> had a teaching load that nobody in this country even at sort of the least prestigious college would put up with. I mean, he's, mm. it's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to think about that, that kind of constantly tuned in thing and how that, you know, kind of maybe emerges out of this idea of his, you know, the God consciousness and, and, uh, and this feeling of utter dependence that, you know, it is this kind of yeah. 
permeation that just you know should shape your kind of constant thinking and, and engagement with with the world yeah no i think that's right i mean so so yeah we should probably say a word about the god concept simple but yes everything's interconnected right that is his idea of what the infinite is so so mm-hmm. if you're thinking about that all the time it's it's not uh, so much of a stretch to talk about it um yeah so that's exactly mm-hmm. right and, and um yeah that's enough said there yes yeah <laughs> thank you so it's it's less than two months till christmas uh, so, so maybe we close with a little discussion of, of, of Schleiermacher's Christmas Eve, uh, a dialogue, uh, yeah. which you kind of point out in the book is, is a pretty great entry point if, if someone wants to start reading Schleiermacher. Can you, and you share a nice story about kind of um, Schleiermacher's inspiration for the form that book took. Uh, so can you just talk a bit about the Christmas Eve and, and why you think it's a good place to start and, and what Schleiermacher was hoping to do in that work? Yeah, so, so it is a good place because if you pick up um, uh, if you pick up, say, his 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 Christian faith, which is his big uh, fat theology book for seminary students, it's for seminary students. They all have a master's degree in philosophy, so it, so it's it's uh, yeah. you need some background to to appreciate it, right? But the Christmas Eve dialogue again, it's it's about religion. It's not about theology. So the Christmas Eve dialogue, um, he. he um, he he got, was inspired. He, Schleiermacher was a musician. He sang in the in the Berlin had us like a civic chorus that he sang in. Uh, apparently, he was a pretty good tenor. Um, it's unfair and, at this point. Yeah. How I many know. things he can yeah. do with it? <laughs> this is uh, absurd. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, he had a hunchback, so that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, so he went to a flute concert. A sort of famous blind flautist came through Berlin, and Schleiermacher went to hear him, and, and he gets so captivated by the music that he works out this idea of a Christmas Eve dialogue. And it is a dialogue. It's there's know, four or five central characters talking to each other. Slymarker, I should also mention to your point of it not being fair was the produced the standard translation of Plato's dialogues into German. Right. So, so the dialogue form is important to him and the folks he hangs out with are artists, right? He, he, I mean, he gets in actually in trouble with his church leaders because he hangs out with like the bohemian crowd who are writing poems and maybe sleeping around a little bit and not following social conventions um, and and writing novels and poetry. Uh, Those are Schleiermacher, that's his social crowd, right? Uh, What they they say about Schleiermacher is, of all of us, he was the greatest artist of conversation, right? He was a great conversationalist because he could draw people in and get them to sort of express themselves. He's not the greatest writer of fiction. So the Christmas Eve dialogues, if you pick it up as literature, they're a little bit clunky. Um, But the idea is that there's a family uh, celebrating Christmas Eve. um, And uh, over the course of the evening, so in in Germany, Christmas is celebrated primarily on Christmas Eve. um, The hostess... Um, is one of the main characters. The way that the hostess of this family um, arranges the party, she arranges the gifts perfectly and the food perfectly, um, is a, is a kind of an expression of Schleiermacher's idea that in everything you do, your personality is present. And she is thinking carefully about everybody who's going to come that night and making sure that they get the maximum joy over what she's giving them and how it's wrapped and where it's placed and all this stuff, right? And then there's a little girl who's a little precocious, um, who who uh, is a good musician, 
And then there's a bunch of guys, men who like to argue about theology, and they're arguing about what the meaning of Christmas is, and they really almost ruin the party. <laughs> their theology, and, and at a crucial moment, um, the, the, the hostess says to the little girl, hey, like, why don't you play us some music? And she sits down at the piano, and, and the, the music um, restores the point of the evening, which is that we're a community that's joined together by this, to commemorate this gift that's been given to us, which is this, this um, way of being in the world that entered with Jesus. And the point is for us to be together and to experience each other in this giving way and not to argue about how the incarnation is possible or impossible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's, that's um, in the arguments of the men, you can sort of see reflected some of the main theological positions of Schleiermacher's day. And then in the actions of the women and the little girl, you get a sense of, okay, this is what's actually important. Mm -hmm. um, this is what a worship service is supposed to instill in us, this mm -hmm. feeling, this experience. Um, and then we can try to put that into words, but if we disagree about the words, um, we still have the main thing, which is this experience uh, mm -hmm. of this wonderful, joyous Christmas Eve. That's excellent. Thank you so much. And, and if you have enjoyed this conversation, do folks go and get Schleiermacher, A Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, and Ted, what else do you want to uh, promote, draw people's attention to at this point? <laughs> okay. uh, well, um, uh, okay. So I did mention my other book. Mm. I, okay, Get Shelley's Poe's book on the Trinity. It's a very good book. Uh, I wrote a book called Modern Religion, Modern Race, which talks about um, some of the ways in which Christian theology is implicated in, in constructing the idea of race and some of the problems of racism. If, I mean, if theology kind of got us into this problem, I think theology has a role in getting us out of it. Um, and actually, uh, Liam, I'm going to send you a link. Uh, we have at ILIF School of Theology where I teach um, at Artificial Intelligence Institute, and we're doing this amazing online event in a couple weeks about surveillance, blackness, and counter-technology. Mm -hmm. And it may not be obvious how this is related to Schleiermacher, but it is. So I'll send you that link in <laughs> yeah, case wanna, so folks want to sign up for that online. It's going to be a, more of a game than a conference, actually, to think about how we oh, use wow. technology in our world. So that, that link will be in the show notes. If you're listening right now, you can scroll down uh, either on YouTube or if you're in the podcast app, and you can find that link and, and check out that event, which sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, I hope we'll get you back on another time to, to talk more. Awesome. Thank you, Liam. I really had fun. 